Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Welcome back to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. So this episode, we are talking about the hero as a werewolf. This is going to be the first of two episodes on this story. This will be the recap episode. And then in two weeks, we'll have a discussion episode. The hero as werewolf was originally published in the anthology, The New Improved Sun in 1975. Uh, not actually The New Sun, but sort of strange title for Wolf to be publishing in uh, just on the cusp of beginning to write his own The Book of the New Sun. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, we read this in the story collection, The Death of Dr. Island and Other Stories and Other Stories, though it's also in The Best of Gene Wolfe. Yeah, and it absolutely deserves its place in The Best of Gene Wolfe. This is a masterpiece of a story. It's also a fan favorite. It's also one that I've been looking forward to getting to for a very long time. I'm excited that we're actually finally here to do this story. It is also a fairly big story that I think has a lot of connections with other stories that we've covered. And that's something I want to explore when we get to the discussion, since that's one of the benefits of doing this podcast the way that we've been doing it chronologically and trying to hit almost everything that Wolf has written. But before we get there, and, and even really before we get into this episode at all, I do want to say a word of thanks to our Patreon supporters. My wife Elizabeth and I moved recently, and this was something that we had to do unexpectedly. Uh, also, I'd say rather quickly when our apartment decided that it didn't feel like keeping the rain on the outside side anymore. And this move, it, it, it means that Brandon and I are no longer recording in the same location anymore. And that means that we needed to get a whole bunch of new recording equipment in order to keep podcasting. And that's something we were only able to do because of our crowdfunding. So just want to say thank you so much for that. It, it kept us on the air, kept us from, from having to take a hiatus for a few months uh, at a time when I desperately needed to have the podcast in my life. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, your support as patrons means the world to us, and it allows us to do so much, uh, including just keeping this podcast on the air. And it's a real pleasure. So, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to all of our patrons and supporters. It's awesome. Well, and speaking of real pleasures, I think we should get into this story. And it is your turn to do the recap, Brandon. So have at it. Okay, well, the story opens with an epigram from the Jungle Book. More specifically, it comes from a poem called Hunting Song of the Sioni Pack. Uh, Wolf offers these lines to us from Kipling. Feet in the jungle that leave no mark. Eyes that can see in the dark. The dark. Tongue. Give tongue to it. Hark. Oh, hark. Once. Twice. And again. So, I mean, Wolf clearly wants us to be thinking about hunting in this story, and maybe more particularly, Mowgli learning how to hunt with his adoptive wolf family. Yeah, I've actually gone now and reread The Jungle Book for the first time in over 30 years because of this uh, epigram here at the start of the story. And wow, am I glad I did that. Uh, and I think really, for me, one of the real joys of doing this show has been to be on the receiving end of Gene Wolfe's suggested reading list, uh, which also I think is, we should say, is something that we're looking at for the future, by the way. And when we get to the second act of this story, there are actually going to be a few more allusions that Wolf makes to the, the Jungle Book, uh, besides just invoking this poem here. And they were allusions I didn't notice on my first read of this story to, to do this episode. But now that I've read the story again, having just read the entirety of the, the Jungle Book, they jumped out to me. It'll be fun to talk about, about some of those as we get into it. Uh, but I think Wolf puts this particular epigram at the, the top of the story because he wants us to be thinking about Mowgli as someone who is a human who thinks he's a wolf or, or or maybe as someone who is a wolf in the form of a human and and right figuring that out for himself and finding a place in the world is really the central theme of the jungle book it's the the central plot of that book and it's going to be at play here too in this story and, and really then the the epigram right here is wolf priming us to be on the lookout for that same idea in this story. And the Jungle Book, it also asks us to think about what are the differences between a wolf and a human. And, and maybe we might broaden that out to say it's asking us, you know, how can we tell that someone is a person and not an animal? Which is a question, of course, that's going to be at play here, too. And it was also at play in the fifth head of Cerberus. And uh, something that I now know that we very definitely missed in our coverage of that book is that the wolves in the Jungle Book, the the Sioni pack of this poem, they call themselves the free people. So uh, we'll have that, we'll have that to look forward to as one of our <laughs> mea culpas, our many mea culpas, when we do our next installment of the the road so far in uh, a few years. Oh, that's that's so fascinating. I didn't really realize that. I haven't had the opportunity or the time to really go back to Kipling as much as I've wanted to. Though it's kind of this nagging voice in the back of my head that's like, read more Kipling, read more Kipling. Um, so I'm really glad you had the time this week uh, and, and in preparation for this episode to get into the Jungle Book. I cannot wait to pull out some of these illusions that Wolf has uh, peppered his story with. But the actual story opens with our 
protagonist whose name is Paul. And Paul is at a night meeting in a park, in a city park. We learn that he keeps his hands scrupulously clean, and he appears to fit in with everyone else who is in attendance at this meeting. However, Paul is not like the other people there, who we learn are called the Masters. Paul instead is a human, and his world is made up of fear, pavement, flesh, death, stone, dark, loneliness, and blood. It's a it's a hell of a list if, <laughs> if I've ever read one in my life to, to describe someone's life. And we also glean that the world Paul lives in is a little bit different from our own. And this is indicated to us by the fact that trees uh, are phosphorescent. They self-generate blue light. A policeman is kind of walking around the people in the meeting. And Paul remembers that he needs to hide from this policeman because he's hiding out in the open. And while he may be able to fool the masters, he knows he can't fool a policeman because the policeman, being neither human nor master, would see through Paul's costume to the reality beneath it. The party ends with the passing of a passenger rocket overhead, and Paul wonders if that was the signal somehow to end the meeting because... uh, As far as Paul can tell, the Masters don't track time the way that humans used to, and the Masters also have no use for money. So also these indicators of a big shift in society and the way it functions. Yeah, this is an absolutely amazing opening. I mean, we're just four paragraphs into this story at this point, four paragraphs and an epigram, I guess. And and you read some of what is the the second line of the story, but I actually kind of want to read the whole thing in its entirety because I think this is just a magnificent opening. And and really, probably I should just say right here, still early on in the episode, that this is one of these wolf stories that I kind of just want to read every line of out loud because the the, the wordsmithing is just so fantastic. But I will I will do my best to uh, to, to keep to keep that in check a little bit here. But here's here's how the story actually opens after the epigram. An owl shrieked, and Paul flinched. Fear, pavement, flesh, death, stone, dark, loneliness, and blood made up Paul's world. The blood was all much the same, but the fear took several forms, and he had hardly seen another human being in the four years since his mother's death. Uh, It's the first two sentences of that story, and, I mean, just what an opening, right? This is how you do it. Wolf makes this world come alive just by really just by giving us a list of nouns and then one statement about backstory and all of that really in a, a single sentence. And and really, I think this whole first paragraph is just a masterclass in how to build a world while also building action, right? Maybe, maybe how to build a world while also building an actual story, which is something that I know I certainly struggle with. And Wolf does drop us right in the middle of some action here, even if at first it seems that the action is, you know, listening to a public lecture in a park, something that appears rather passive to to someone watching it, but it isn't passive, right? That's not really what's going on here, as we see pretty quickly when Wolf lets us in on the secret that Paul is not who or what he is pretending to be, and that there's a danger of getting caught. And so just right away, I'm completely invested in this story. I want Paul to get what he wants, even though what he wants, as we'll see, is not a nice thing, and I shouldn't want anyone to get that. And and that really is going to even be the whole idea of this story, the idea of the hero as werewolf, the idea of the hero as a monster of sorts, which of course we'll be taking up in the discussion. Right. Paul is a an entirely sort of unlikable, uncouth character. And especially after reading the story multiple times, really may, it really makes me wonder what Wolf has his on his mind as a writer in kind of creating this world because he's doing so much. There are probably two sections in this story that are just full of world building that make it a science fiction story. But this is really just an old school horror monster story where we're fixed in the point of view of the monster. Right. There are some just absolutely fascinating world building bits here. We learned that Paul is a human, but that he hasn't seen very many other humans in the last four years. And so what that means just on the face of it is that the people he's hanging out with in the park are not 
humans or, or, or are not what he calls old style homo sapiens, or, or at least, you know, as far as Paul's concerned, they're not that. We might have some, some questions about that as the story progresses. And, and that's something that Paul feels, even though he resembles them enough to pretend to be one of them. And instead, he refers to these people as masters. And then there is this policeman whom Paul thinks of as neither a human nor a master. And you know, he describes this policeman as having eyes bright with stupidity, and then also shows us that this policeman has a strong intuition. Uh, we're going to spend some time on on what's going on with that in the discussion as well. And and those, I think, are really just kind of the obvious notes of the world building here. But there are also some really awesome, really exciting elements that are actually quite easy to overlook, especially on a, a first read as we're, we're sucked into the, the action and the emotion of this opening. The, the passenger rocket that flies overhead is, I think, going to turn out to be a little more significant than it seems here at first. Uh, we've also seen this idea before in IBEM. We know Wolf is thinking about rockets as a kind of commercial transportation as he's writing stories during this period. Uh, we're also told that there are buildings that are both old and new in the, the city and that they're they're lit up. And also, as you pointed out, Brandon, the, the trees that line the path in the park, they glow with this blue light, a, a blue light that uh, is described as being self-generated. I mean, you described it as, as phosphorescent, though that's not quite the word that Wolf uses. So it's not really clear to us, the reader anyway, what is actually going on there. I mean, they, they just kind of maybe are blue magic trees or something. I mean, of course, they're not actually magic, right? It's a bit of science fantasy that Wolf is playing around here, but it's a great detail. And I think it's another one that will become important in our discussion. And then finally, there is this bit about time and money here, this idea that the masters don't use time and they don't use money. And Wolf, when he writes this, Wolf is clearly critical of the role that money plays in our own society. In fact, he, he calls it a god and uh, magic. And and then he shows us this world or is about to show us this world that simply doesn't need money anymore. And so even though that's not really where this story is headed, you know, this just plugs right into the, you know, the same puzzle, I guess, uh, as for lesson and uh, hour of trust and some of the other stories that we've seen uh, in this batch of stories where Wolf is just being critical of our political economy. Right. And it's strange in reading this story, how easy it is to empathize with Paul because he's the protagonist, but also think about whether Wolf is critiquing society, the society that he has built the world around where there are these masters. And one of the way he clues in the reader to be critical of this society, even though he doesn't really give us a lot of legitimate reasons to, is simply by calling these people masters. That means there must be some sort of servant class that is lurking in the background that nobody acknowledges or even uh, cares about, and Wolf doesn't even write about them. And so he's using this kind of great technique um, to get the reader to uncritically accept Paul's maybe heroic protagonism or at least uh, good guy status. And so the reader doesn't have to do any extra work if they don't want to. You can just take the story as it is. And who's not critical of uh, the economy when they don't have enough money? And who's not critical of never having enough time? And who likes masters? I mean, I just think Wolf is really onto something here with the way he's coding the uh, story and the two sides were kind of come we're we're kind of going to see come into conflict with one another here in just a moment. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're going to be unpacking all of this in the discussion. I mean, what you've done is really just I think some great foreshadowing. But we should emphasize here too that all of this is just happening in like the first six or seven paragraphs, maybe even five or six paragraphs. I mean, this is just all foregrounded. Uh, and Wolf is much more economical and much more efficient at doing it than we are at describing what he's actually doing. I, I can't say enough or frequently enough what a masterpiece of a story this is, but I will not get in the way of us proceeding into the story any further. So, uh, Brandon, uh, let's let's get back into what happens next. Right. So Paul follows a couple after the meeting, after the couple leaves the meeting, and he's hoping that this couple will not be one of the type who has a car or a ride waiting for them. Uh, the couple is comprised of a fat man and a thin woman, and they partake together in some sort of odd drug that consists of crimson crystals that are stored inside of a moon-like 
container and this is more of the moon imagery that is kind of all through that you can find all throughout this story the couple fortunately for paul does not get into a car and so paul's able to follow them and eventually he gets ahead of them and lures them into an alleyway but he doesn't use the old trick the old way of luring uh these masters into dark places uh which is by crying like an infant in order to get them to investigate. Uh, Too many people have learned the hard way that there's probably not an infant crying in an alleyway. But this is one of those moments where you can just pass over what Wolf is writing here. Uh, This is a society of people who had to learn that lesson many times as a society. These are people who don't walk past uh, the sound of a crying infant. They're wired to go check them out and so this is this is a moment where we have to ask the question is the society that paul isn't a part of really a terrible society um instead though paul takes a silver a silver bell out of his cloak and he rings it this does capture the couple's curiosity and so they do walk down the alleyway to investigate the woman in the couple is beginning to feel scared but the fat man takes out his illuminator which is not a flashlight uh, and shines it around suddenly the couple is attacked by two others neither of which is paul paul is as surprised uh, by this attack as the couple is The other attackers rapidly kill the man, and the woman tries to escape, but Paul catches her and breaks her neck. At this point, Paul tries to claim the dead couple for his own, uh, for himself, but the man of these other attackers here insists that the dead are for him and his daughter. Something about the way the the man's voice sounds reminds Paul of something that comes up in the story many times called ghost houses. And we'll get a little bit more on that later, but this is the second reference at this point to these ghost houses, and they are always on Paul's mind. Paul, the old man, and his daughter get into a minor verbal altercation here, and it's about who gets to take the kills home and ostensibly eat them. The old man claims that the girl is as good as a man in a fight, and even though he's old, he's also just as good as a young man. Paul recognizes at this moment that he's outmanned, and so he asks to take the best shares of the fat man away with him. At this suggestion, the girl draws a knife out of her shirt, and this upsets Paul because he hates knives. The father, the the old man, claims he needs to take the whole of the fat man, including his clothes, so that they can use the clothes to blend in better, but also because there's two of them. And Paul, now who is explicitly under the threat of violence and and realizes he probably isn't going to walk away with anything of the man, takes the dead woman and leaves. Yeah, we get a great note here, too, from Paul's perspective that this is maybe okay because women taste better than men do anyway. And he regards the necessity to eat a a male uh, as you know something that indicates that he's in real dire straits. And Wolf does an amazing job here as well of of subtly showing, maybe not subtly, but showing us how these three humans are behaving like wolves in this instance. Right? They're they're fighting over a kill. They're fighting over access to food and who should take precedence, whose claim is greater to to which body, and so on. Uh, Janie, uh, the the young woman, uh, shows her teeth to indicate that she's willing to fight. Uh, of course, that's you know that's what most mammals do with their teeth, but that's not what humans do in instinctively with our teeth, right? We were real strange in the animal kingdom and certainly in the mammal kingdom or certainly among mammals anyway, in that we as humans show each other our teeth when we're smiling or when we're laughing. We show each other our teeth when things are good, but here she is showing her teeth uh, uh, when things are bad as a sign that she's willing to fight as a, a kind of confrontational, angry gesture like most animals do, like wolves do specifically. And I think that's a a brilliant touch that we get here, that wolf doesn't have to explicate. He doesn't have to say that. He just shows us, right? This is story showing rather than storytelling. Yeah, it's fantastic. And this whole scene is really graphic and surprisingly graphic. And again, 
Paul is, in his own mind, and Wolf as a writer is really good at knowing his characters' minds, Paul is fully justified to himself in why he prefers to kill women and eat them than men. And it's just another element of the story where you're you're kind of okay with it. It kind of slips on by. But this is like a true horror story. This is one of the best horror stories I've read in a very, very long time because Wolf situates the reader deeply into the normalcy or the mundanity of the villains or heroes own mindset that makes it seem normalized and it's just a a brilliant touch yeah wolf sucks us into paul's point of view just completely just 100 percent. so we are on his side we're rooting for him here yeah we we're on his side right we we take his side in this argument we think paul's the one who did all the work to lure these people into the alley you know it doesn't matter that you actually killed one of them they were only there because of paul so he should get to eat both bodies you know and you just take a step back and think wait why am i cheering for that why am i rooting for this and and you even just lose sight of the fact that what we're talking about is murder that this is a murder scene and there's this real genuine horror that paul pretends to be a baby in order to lure people into a trap so that he can eat them i mean you know that's not what he does in this case because that trick doesn't work anymore he's got to use this bell now but it's pretending to be a baby so that you can eat people is I mean, I never thought I would say that out loud, and I feel gross now that I have. It's truly horrifying, but Wolf gets us on the side of his protagonist. And just, you know, the very title of the story, The Hero as Werewolf, is clearly begging us to think about what makes Paul a hero, uh, if anything. And of course, that's a question that we'll take up in the discussion. And as you said, Brandon, there are a lot of world-building details that we get in this murder scene, which is is quite a, a writing trick that Wolf pulls off here. Uh, one of the things that we learn is that the, the masters have had their genetic heritage revised for intellection and peace. On top of this, even the, the master's clothing, and this is really cool, even the master's clothing is a type of advanced technology. The woman's skirt responds to her thoughts, and then it hikes itself up so that she can run faster. Uh, I, I wish my clothes would do something like that. And then she has this snake necklace that she's wearing, and this becomes almost an actual snake during this confrontation and it tries to protect her. It, it, it trips one of the, the wolves here. And one of the things I find really interesting about this necklace is that is that that's actually all that Wolf tells us about it. it. It doesn't factor in the description that we get after Paul kills the woman. It's not still kind of wriggling around trying to, to harm her attackers or something like that. So I, I imagine here when I'm thinking about how does this stuff work, as I think we know Wolf would have, Wolf the engineer would have, uh, you know, I imagine then that this necklace as well was in some way responding to this woman's thoughts and That's very cool. And this is something we'll be talking about in the discussion as well. The imagery here also suggests a sort of Moses in the court of Pharaoh uh, sort of situation uh, where the necklace becomes the snake. And then when it falls on the ground after the woman dies, uh, which does indicate that it's probably ruled in some way by her thoughts, it's just a necklace again in the same way that Moses' staff becomes a snake and then he picks it up and it's just a staff again. I, I don't know if Wolf is doing much with this imagery, but it's certainly present in the story. At this point, Paul leaves the alley with the woman, as we've said, and he takes the woman to his home, which is located in what appears to be a very old sort of estate. Uh, He lives in the top floor of an old garden house because everything everything else has gone to rot. I actually want to read this paragraph. This is the one that I want to read uh, that Wolf wrote to describe the place because I think it captures the sort of gothic horror element of the story pretty well. It's an element that I didn't pick up on really until my second or third read, but I think this paragraph just really, uh, I, I think it's fantastic. Wolf writes this of the place. His own place was that in which his mother had borne him a place high in a house built when humans were the masters. Every door was nailed tight and boarded up. But on one side, a small garden lay between two wings, and in a corner of this garden, behind a bush where the shadows were thick, even at noon, the bricks had fallen away. The lower floors were full of rotting furniture and the smell of rats and mold. But high in his wooden turret, 
The walls were still dry, and the sun came in by day at eight windows. He carried his burden there and dropped her in a corner. It was important that his clothes be kept as clean as the masters kept theirs, though he lacked their facilities. He pulled the cloak from the body and brushed it vigorously. I mean, this is just full of like Nosferatu imagery and like werewolf imagery and all this great stuff. I, I just think this paragraph is one of the best in the story. Yeah, this is an absolutely chilling description. I mean, it is gothic to the core. We get this sense of an old world that is is rotting and decaying, and the decay of that old world is going to have negative consequences. That it's that that Paul is actually a creature of that decay. We're going to see that throughout the story. But one of the things I love the most about this description is that it is also a description of the. Maison de Chêne in Port Mimizan from the fifth ed of Cerberus. We've got uh, rats in the, the basement, something disgusting going on in the basement, the rot and the decay. And then up at the top floor, uh, it's, it's windows and light that is being described to us here, being emphasized for us here. This is everything that the Maison de Chêne is as well. Also, you know, house of the dog, or of which a wolf is a kind, I suppose, right? So it's the same imagery here that wolf is playing with. Totally. And we're going to learn Paul's last name is Guru, which is, you know, right. wolf. So uh, it is a wolf house as well. Uh, well, at this point in the story, Paul and the woman have a conversation. She wants to know what's going to happen to her. And Paul simply tells her that he's going to eat her. And at this point, the woman explains that she's heard of creatures like Paul, but she never really believed that they existed. And Paul tells her that, that his kind were once the masters. And since they're talking, Paul decides the woman should be sitting up. So he kind of picks her up and adjusts her body. And because her neck is broken, he has to tie a, a, a knot of her hair to a nail above the seat that she's on so that her broken neck won't cause her to slump over. It is just chilling and dark imagery here and, and, a, and a dark action that Paul takes. The woman tells Paul that there's really no point in even doing this because she's already dead. Paul hears her and he knows that this is something prey always say when they're dying. Uh, but so he has the opportunity to be preoccupied. And what Paul is preoccupied about is the fact that there are other humans and that he's just met them in the city. And this is, of course, the old man and his daughter. We'll learn their names later on are Emmett and Janie. The woman is also thinking about the other humans uh, that attacked her and her partner. And she says that there probably aren't that many more of this type of human around. Paul says that there must be because the master still set traps for them. And Paul also tells the woman that he kills 20 or 30 people a year, uh, but he knows that he's boasting, or Wolf lets us know in, in his kind of famous parenthetical style that, that Paul is boasting. And then Paul tells the woman that he's going to go get the young girl and bring her back to live with him. During this bit of talk, the woman uses a kind of telepathy to raise a bedsheet behind Paul in order to wrap it around him and smother him. But Paul easily avoids this trick because he's seen other masters use it many times before. At this point, Wolf uses the conversation between Paul and the woman to offer us some more world building. We learned that at some point people were able to change their genetic makeup. And this was indicated to us before uh, when Wolf was talking about the male and female masters. Uh, the humans that have remained people of Paul's ilk have decided not to have their genetic code changed. They're of the old breed. They're, they're part of the group of people that wore out the planet and created a, an energy and a resource crisis that the new masters are still all recovering from. The humans that remained unchanged, humans like Paul, began to eat the new masters and eventually faded out of society altogether and into myth. At this point, Paul says he's going to leave, and if the woman can escape while he's gone, she should really try to do that. And he gives her about five minutes after waiting outside, and then he goes upstairs to check on her progress, and she really just hasn't made that much progress. So he sets her back up in the corner of his turret, 
And he goes in search of the girl and her father, Janie and Emmett. So much of this story is actually just going to be conversations that are building up the the world for us, but it never feels like it's exposition, which of course is something that Wolf is a master at. And this is one of these conversations where, the, you know, the tidbits are, or where the information is just given to us in in small little tidbits, and and none of it's particularly in context or in the right order. And we have to kind of tease it out. We have to kind of puzzle it out. But one of the things we definitely come away from this conversation with is a, a better understanding of where we are in. In the the timeline, right? We know that there was a time when when humans, when Homo sapiens, had opted for a genetic change because they had worn out the the planet, and those consequences are still being felt, even though the behavior has actually stopped. And this is something that I think is very interesting for us here in in 2019. I think because Wolf presents this as a, an issue of resource conservation, where we would think of this in terms of climate change. So for the masters, right, this is really simply a matter of just not having enough energy sources and not having enough raw materials to do things like, you know, run gasoline engines and and so on. But I think if Wolf were to write this story today, right, he'd be thinking in terms of obliterated ecosystems. Uh, This is just an interesting item in the, you know, the history of the, the future, the history of how science fiction writers have conceived of the sort of near uh, future for our own society is going to be. But what really matters for the plot here is that Paul doesn't have this genetic change because his family had declined to participate in this program, or at least, you know, that's the assumption that this woman makes. And this is really where the whole plot is set up for us. Because Paul hasn't become a master, or, you know, maybe we should say because his parents or or possibly his grandparents didn't become masters when everyone else was doing whatever this was to have their, you know, genetic condition changed to become masters, to become something different from a homo sapiens. Because Paul isn't a master, because this didn't, because his ancestors didn't make this choice, he's an outcast and maybe even a criminal simply for existing. And so we learn here that the masters set traps to to catch him, to catch other homo sapiens. We're going to get more on this later. This is going to be a big part of the plot. But it's not just a matter of being a criminal, right? Because to this woman, Paul is a monster. He's a, a cannibal who hunts other people. And she is actually just as startled to discover that he exists in the first place as she is to have experienced his violence, right? She's heard of people like Paul, but she didn't think that they were real. This is like vampires to us, or, you know, maybe more on the nose, like werewolves to us. And I think this whole setup is really a lot like Richard Matheson's classic story, I Am Legend, in which a human is regarded as a monster by the monsters who he is hunting. And the whole point of that story is to get us to think about how we determine who is a person and who isn't. And that has to be something that Wolf is asking us to think about here in this story as well. Right. Even though Wolf never uses the word passing uh, to talk about Paul and later Janie, it's clearly a big part of what is on the mind of humans is whether or not they can pass as masters. Uh, and it's a big part of the conversation that Emmett and Paul have uh, coming up. One thing that's very strange that jumped out to me, an odd detail of the text, so to speak, is that the woman says if she had just had one more year, everything would have been okay. And that's a very, very curious phrase because we don't know what that means at all. But the woman clearly knows what it means. Would she have been married? Is there some thing that happens to masters when they reach a certain age? Uh, Are these sorts of threats not around for a certain class of masters. It's just one of these great mysteries that Wolf drops in the story and maybe we don't ever get an answer for. Well, that's going to be one of the questions we take up in the discussion because Mark Aramini has some things to say about it that I found really, really fascinating. So I will I will pitch them to you and see what you think when we get into the discussion. Before we get into the, the next act of this story, I want to dwell on just a particular plot point in the way that you narrated this conversation, or really the way that you described the condition of this woman. There's some question here of whether or not she is alive or dead while this conversation is happening. I mean, she's certainly animated and sentient in in uh, during this conversation but 
there's also this insistence that she is actually dead, that she has a broken neck. And Paul even says that, that the masters take a long time to fully expire after their necks are broken. And it seems to be that this is something he has observed is different from what happens with uh, a homo sapiens when, uh, when our necks are broken. And this is going to be an important detail later. This is going to come back in the plot that we have this information already. Yes, yes, it will. And I'm glad you pointed that out and accented that because it does raise some questions to what what happens in the denouement of the story. Well, as we said, Paul went out in search of Emmett and Janie, and he finds them with relative ease. He follows a pretty simple hunting pattern uh, from the alleyway where they killed the couple um, because he knew they must have lived close, but he also followed his nose and the smell of clotted blood. The girl and her father are living in a school bus in a junkyard, and the father knows exactly why Paul is there. Paul isn't the first person to come around looking to take Janie uh, away from Emmett in order to be married to her. Emmett knew this day would come, and I assume Paul really is the best choice for Janie, although Emmett goes through some pains to let us know how slim the pickings really are in suitable partners for Janie. And this is a pretty long section of the story here, and in it, Wolf answers a few of the questions that he's raised. He explains what ghost houses are, for instance, through dialogue. Uh, They aren't actually haunted houses or houses haunted by ghosts, but they're more like prisons with electric doors that open and close and lock automatically. But Emmett lets us know that just because there's an explanation for these ghost houses where masters trap humans doesn't mean that ghosts don't exist. Kind of a fun little note thrown in there. Through this conversation, Paul also explains his hunting strategy of hiding in plain sight by dressing like a master, really passing. Um, But this only works because he's youthful, and this is more implied in the text. Emmett says he can never pull off that trick because there's too much wrong with him physically, although Janie could pass for a master if she wanted to. But all this is really leading up to the reason why Emma and Janie came into the city. There are two reasons, really. One is the country was getting to be pretty bad, and Janie had begun menstruating, and Emmett knew that eventually she would want to be with a man and not just live and hunt with her father. Emmett, at this point, knows he has a captive audience in Paul, so he just tells his whole backstory. We learn that Emmett's whole family was pretty much wiped out because their genetics weren't even good enough to save. It feels like they weren't even allowed to opt into this sort of genetic tinkering program. A lot of his family was just left to die because they had diabetes. And once the medication for that ran out, once insulin ran out, uh, these new masters, these scientists, or whoever was in charge of this uh, new genetic leap in evolution in humanity, seemed to just allow whole classes of people with certain conditions to die. It could have been cured, Emmett knows this, but again, his family were just not good candidates for the genetic alterations that many people were undergoing. Paul and Emmett at this point have a little aside to talk about how great it is to eat somebody with diabetes because their blood is sweet. <laughs> it's, 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 a this, crazy, it's a crazy moment. Yeah, this is a real chilling moment of the story. <laughs> right. Uh, but Wolf moves us pretty quickly past it. It wasn't just Emmett's family who was wiped out. It seems like there was some sort of ecological catastrophe that destroyed farms and food stock that a lot of people relied on. Emmett's family's chickens got a disease, so they couldn't, so the chickens couldn't be sold or eaten. Uh, corn crops were dying and not really growing, and Emmett's family also didn't have the resources to trade anything for food because money was getting phased out here. Emmett's tr- father even tried to go get food for his family and throw himself on the mercy of some other people who might have had some viable chickens, but he was humiliated and beaten for this attempt. And Emmett tells us also that one Christmas Eve, uh, machines came out to the Pendleton farm and just started 
destroying the fields and, and everything else. And the machines ended up inadvertently killing Emmett's brother by wounding him while destroying the family home while the family was inside of it. And we also learned that all of this took place 50 years ago in the year 2009. Emmett Pendleton's backstory is super interesting. For one, Wolf has a lot of fun with names here. We get this story about the different branches of his family. There's the the Worthmore Pendletons and the Evershaw Pendletons. These are the, the communities that they live in. But the Worthmore Pendletons are literally worth more. They're contrasted then with the Evershaw Pendletons, which is actually Emmett's branch. And Evershaw means something like always in the forest, or maybe we might say like eternally rusty. So there's some kind of class distinction here, and this matters because the Worthmore Pendletons are allowed to participate in the genetic change, but the Evershaw Pendletons are not. And, you know, this class distinction seems to matter. It seems to be at play when we learn that the the program to genetically enhance, and, and maybe we should say alter rather than enhance, I guess, but uh, genetically alter humans didn't ever intend to take everyone. You know, we don't know why, we don't know what the reasons are, but there's a real sense of eugenics that we get when we we learn this information, which contrast with what we just had with Paul and the woman that he's murdered because she seems to assume that everyone had the opportunity to do this, but that's not what Emmett Pendleton is telling us and he lived through it. And actually, we learn a lot from Emmett Pendleton, from, from Jamie's father here. I mean, he's a real character, right? So he lived through this radical change of rewriting the genetic code of humans such that they are now distinct from Homo sapiens. And he's really seen the whole world change around him. But even still, he is just completely concerned with old school nationalism. He's concerned with whether he should let his daughter marry a foreigner. We get a note on that here that there's you know this German guy that maybe he was going to marry Janie to, but he wasn't sure if he should trust a foreigner. He also believes in ghosts, right? He, he even thinks that he's seen a ghost. That is a story that we just don't get here. It's really a throwaway line, but someone should go write that story for sure. But of course, all of this is really building Emmett Pendleton up as a character who is kind of a yokel. He's an uneducated farmer from rural America. He's uh, nationalistic, he's superstitious, and he's clinging to a world that doesn't even exist anymore. And that can all really be contrasted with the the setting that we're in, right? We're in this bus in a junkyard that is just littered with the remnants of humanity, the remnants of old style homo sapiens. There's also some station wagons and stuff in this junkyard. And this is a great contrast that Wolf has, right? He shows us this person who, even though everything around him has changed, is still clinging to the worldview that really just doesn't have any place anymore. Right. He lived through and experienced the destruction on a, of this change on a very personal level. And at this point in the story, I was wondering whether or not we're going to get a, a note at all about Janie's mother, because you know, if this took place 50 years ago and Janie's 15 or, or maybe 16, Emmett would have had her maybe when he was 40, maybe, maybe 35, maybe 45. So it's really interesting because Emmett is, is kind of an older man. And so he had Janie late in life. And we do learn that Janie's mother died, Emmett's wife. Uh, but there's no sense that... Emmett would just go live with Paul and Janie, like that that he would be there and they would take care of him. This idea of human society, of family, is also shown to be something that's been destroyed in this genetic altering, at least for old school uh, genetically old school homo sapiens. Well, that's one of the things that Wolf is doing so brilliantly in this story is that the whole first act of this story is about one particular need that we all have as creatures, which is food, right? But we're presented we're presented the idea of food from a real animal perspective, right? It's it's Paul, it's it's Janie and Emmett. They're they're hunting for their food. They're fighting over access to the 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 food, fighting over access to their kills. And that need supplies the impetus for everything that happens in that first act. But now in this second act, the plot turns away from hunger, from food to another 
bodily need that animals have. And in this case, it's, it's companionship, or we might even just think of it as sex, though I think that would be simplistic. But that's one of the things that Wolf is trying to, to show us here, is that from Paul's perspective, and maybe even from Janie's as well, there's no place for this father figure here. That's not the need that's being addressed here. It's not family. It, it, it's, it's mating is, is what's driving Paul in this moment. Right. And Paul, we don't quite know his age, though we can assume maybe he's also between 16 and 20. Uh, His mother, having died four years ago, this isn't even something that he would ever have to confront uh, in his life. And so it's just a very strange sort of ritual that humans participate in, that these humans, these werewolves participate in. Um, which is just going and basically taking the daughter from the father, but the father still gets to sort of have his say in who takes the daughter. And it's weird that the daughter doesn't really have any say at all. And there is something strange about Paul in this story, right? One of the things we learned from Emmett Pendleton is that there is actually in this city, there is a community of humans, a community of old style homo sapiens who in fact have monthly meetings as a, as a form of community. There's a, a designated meeting place so that, that may actually change every month, but, but people know where it is. But Paul doesn't know anything about this. He's, even though he actually is native to this city, he is not a part of this community. He's on the outskirts of it, right? So he is actually the young adult male wolf who has been outcast in some sense from the the community, right? He's what we call a lone wolf who has to now establish his own pack. And this is what he is doing in this moment, is trying to establish his own pack. Uh, Though it's kind of heartbreaking because he doesn't even know that he's outside of the community. He doesn't even know that this community exists. And in this community, these monthly meetings, by the way, this is actually one of the things that I think is an allusion to the Jungle Book, because this is uh, how the wolves, uh, this the Sioni pack in the Jungle Book operate. They also have monthly gatherings where they all get together and and speak as a community and and uh, air their grievances and talk about business as well. And it's done under the moon and, and so on. Uh, and I thought that was a real nice touch as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And And with regard to these meetings, Paul kind of has an echo of a memory of them from his mother telling him about them, but he's never really bothered to seek it out on his own. He's just, he really has just been, he really has just been going his own way. Well, and one of the things that's been happening while he's been on his own is this business with the the ghost rooms, or really just one particular ghost room, because we learned that Paul was caught. He was trapped in one of these things that he calls a ghost room, which just seems to be a series of, of you know sliding doors that were totally recognizable to us. But he tells us in this story that he's caught be- even though he's pretending to be a master and is largely good at it. But there's something that doesn't seem right about him to the masters. And so they're going to test him. And you know this kind of immediately calls up an image of, of you know the opening of Blade Runner, right? But it's not clear what's actually going on here. And so one of the questions that we'll take up in the discussion is what the masters are testing for in that instance, and and what they're trying to accomplish at all by even capturing Paul, by capturing other old-style humans as well. So I think that's something we'll want to keep in mind as the, the story progresses. Right. And these ghost houses are really important for Paul's psychology because it's Wolf's way of threading the needle and setting us up for the extreme action that Paul takes at the end of the story. But at this point, Paul and Emmett are still having a conversation. And this conversation switches into a negotiation or maybe just an explanation about Janie. As we've said, a lot of men want to marry Janie. They see her at the gathering of humans that Paul has never been to. And Emmett thinks that all the suitors have been really bad in one way or another. And he he gives us some sympathetic reasons uh, that any reader would be like, yes, these are terrible people that you wouldn't want a child around. Um, But the, the real reason why Emmett turns away a lot of the suitors is because they don't bring food. And they know that that's what the humans are about. They want to be able to eat. And Paul also didn't bring food, but he did assist them in the trap and the kill. So we have to think of this as maybe like a a dowry or an exchange of some sort, or at least understand that Emmett is willing to accept those terms for Janie. And at this point, Paul, on Emmett's advice, tells Janie, 
that she is going to come with him and live with him now. Janie, hearing this, pulls out a knife. And Emmett lets Paul know that even though she's just pulled a knife on him, it does look like Janie wants to go live with Paul. And that Paul will just have to be careful around Janie until she gets used to him. And it'll go a lot better for Paul if he doesn't hurt her, like, you know, abuse her. And if every once in a while he just lets her cut up some people while they're still alive, uh, because she likes to do that, but Emmett recognizes it's not good to let her do that all of the time, but it goes a long way. Janie and Paul get ready to leave the bus, and as they do, Emmett lets Paul know that if Paul hurts Janie, he will have to answer to Emmett. And if Paul decides he doesn't want Janie anymore, Paul shouldn't just put her out on the street. Emmett will take her back. Emmett says that even a bad man can love his child. And that is something that Paul should remember. Yeah, this is a great line here because it asks us to think how we know a person is bad. What what are the things that would indicate to us that someone is bad or evil or I- immoral in, in some way? And that is the question that is being asked all over this story, right? It's embedded in the very title. Right? Can you be a hero and a werewolf at the same time? Can you be a hero if you are killing people in order to eat them? And here we get this nuanced line that you can be bad, you can do bad things and still also be capable of good things as well, such as loving your children or, or, or loving anyone, loving a, a partner, that we are that, that it is very rare for a real person to be wholly good or wholly evil. Uh, and in fact, you know, that's, that's clearly something we've seen Wolf say before. I mean, that's kind of the whole mission statement of the, the fifth head of Cerberus, for example. And I just... I just love the way Wolf lays it out in this story. It just adds so much pathos. It just adds so much pathos to Emmett and Janie and Paul in this whole circumstance. Emmett is recognizing that he loves his child, but his child is outgrowing him and he's trying to do best by her. And it's it's kind of a beautiful scene, even though it's brief. And this is the end of the the second act. And I have to say, I think this whole second act has been absolutely fantastic, even though all it has amounted to is a conversation in an old abandoned bus in an old abandoned junkyard. But one of the things that's been so great about it is that Wolf has reframed everything that he established in the the first act, right? The the story opens with Paul as a hunter, but quietly during this conversation on the bus in the junkyard, we've begun to see Paul as the, the hunted and really maybe to see all of the old style humans as hunted, right? We get that in uh, Emmett Pendleton's backstory. We get it in the story that Paul tells us about the, the ghost house and the being tested by the masters. And so as we are about to get into act three, right, it seems, you know, it's fairly clear to us as readers that we're going to have to see these two things, the, the the hunter and the hunted, come together in this final act. It's you know some really just expert storytelling craft here. Yeah, and this is the second time in Wolf's canon that we've read where in Wolf's oeuvre that we that we've read so far, where a kind of outsider farmer type of character tells us about his time on the farm and changes the direction of the main character's life a little bit. This, of <laughs> course, also happened in For Lesson. Right. <laughs> so, as you said, Glenn, this is the end of the second act, and, and there's an act break in the text, and we are thrust ahead in time a little bit. It's unclear how much time has passed, though. Paul and Janie are disguised as masters, and they're hunting a young boy. They follow the young boy into a building that contains a four-dimensional picture of Hugo de Vries, and it shows a scene of de Vries in the closing years of his life, then dying, then rotting to dust, and then undergoing rebirth as a fissioning cell in his mother's womb with all the labyrinth of genetics still before him. Now, Hugo de Vries was a famous biologist who really did a lot for understanding of genetics, and I think Wolf is showing us this picture. One, he's telling us it's a four-dimensional picture, which I think must just be a movie, uh, and two, that whatever Hugo de Vries accomplished and people shortly after him, it was nothing compared to the accomplishments of uh, scientists who have progressed in this genetic alteration of humans. 
Yeah, that's interesting that you, you, you kind of saw this as a movie. I, I guess I just immediately assumed that this is basically a hologram because we've seen that that's something that Wolf is super into. I'm not sure he ever stops being super into it. But yeah, it's, I guess we would describe a hologram as being three-dimensional. So it's it's something else. I'm not sure if we're supposed to really understand what it what it is. Uh, we're going to spend some time on Hugo de Vries in the discussion. So I'll say a couple of things about him here while we're paused, which is, that yes, he's one of the discoverers of genetics. He's really probably more important than the the other one, who is Gregor Mendel, who we've also encountered before in a wolf story. We'll be talking about him in the discussion uh, as well. But what makes DeVries more important than Gregor Mendel is that DeVries was uh, later by 30 years, by really uh, two generations. And so that meant that science as a profession had really uh, come into fruition at this point in the 1890s. And so De DeVries is making this discovery independently. He doesn't know Mendel's work, but he's making his own discoveries about genetics while being part of a, a network of professional scientists. And so he's able to, to publish more broadly and able to share his research and the results of his research with more people, get more input and more feedback. And so he's able to do more with his discovery than Mendel was and other people are able to do more with his discovery than than you know people were even aware of what Mendel had done with uh, you know crossbreeding peas and so on and there are some other things about DeVries that we'll get into in the discussion but here you know I just want to emphasize that if we're seeing this as a world that has been transformed by genetic manipulation then DeVries would be seen as something of a founding father for this society and I think that's something that's interesting to see here because what we're getting then is a scientist as uh, this founding father, as as someone who exemplifies sort of the founding moment of this society, rather than some kind of national political figure. And so this is just another contrast between Emmett Pendleton and the, the world as it exists now in this story. Yeah, I can't wait to dig into all of this in the discussion. But we're closing in on the end of the story here. Janie has run ahead of Paul to track the boy and we learn that they're in a high-rise building that includes apartments on the lower floors and a school all the way at the top. And here's where I purloined the word phosphorescent uh, describing the trees earlier because there's a tank full of uh, phosphorescent octopuses. Um, and there's, I guess that's important uh, to know for some reason. <laughs> but Paul thinks that the boy and Janie have gotten into a lift shaft, which is a sort of elevator shaft that you swim up and down. You don't really use mechanics. You just follow the current up and down. Um, and he expects that the boy would go all the way up to the top of the lift shaft as quickly as he could, then jump down to the down shaft and evade Janie. So Paul gets off on the 85th floor and just waits for the boy to come back down, and he is rewarded for this intuition. He catches the boy out of the shaft, and the boy pleads for his life, calling Paul young master. And at this point, Paul just breaks the boy's neck. Janie is close behind, and Paul steps into the lift shaft to show Janie his kill. And the hatch on the floor that he's on closes behind himself and the boy. And he can't get out of the shaft. And he, he's forced to swim up in the lift shaft. And Janie's, I guess, in the down shaft. And the lift shaft forces him off on the 101st floor. And at this point, a voice makes an announcement when he's outside of the shaft. He's in a room. The voice says this. I am sorry to detain you. But there is reason to think you have undergone a recent deviation from the optimal development pattern. In a few minutes, I will arrive in person to provide counseling. While you are waiting, it may be useful for us to review what is meant by optimal development. Look at the projection. And a film begins to explain attachment theory here, starting with the child's affection for its mother, then as it gets older, its peer group. This is the sort of story we've seen Janie and Paul go through, uh, maybe an explanation of why they've come together on some level. And Paul is ignoring this film because he is freaking out, trying to escape from the room. Remember, Paul hates being trapped. He hates ghost houses. And I think he's pretty convinced he's in one. And he works to pry the hatch door open, and he, he's using like a rod or some sort of pry bar, and he gets it open enough to slip in his foot. 
and he thinks he can hold the door with his foot, so he lets go of the pry bar, and the hatch slams it shut on his foot, nearly severing it. There's two centimeters of flesh still holding his foot to his leg. Uh, There's a little break in action here uh, where the film shows a young woman who has chosen to be a physician and explaining what that is, eradicating diseases and whatnot. But Paul is screaming and trying to get Janie to understand how to get his foot out of the trap. And he's screaming about how everybody is dead or they're dying. And this is the end of the story. I mean, I'm going to read the final lines here, but this is the end of the action here. And these are now the final lines of the story. It took Janie a long time to bite through his Achilles tendon. When it was over, she began to tear at the ligaments that held the bones of the tarsus to the leg. Over the pain, he could feel the hot tears washing the blood from his foot. The end. This is a harrowing ending. And I'll just say right now that I hope that I never have to chew off my wife's leg in order to save her. Uh, but if I do, I will almost certainly cry while I'm doing it, uh, just as, as Janie does here. And of course, this this final image brings us from Paul as hunter through Paul as hunted to Paul as caught, right? This is a life cycle that might happen to a wolf in a society that hunts wolves. And there are a few things I want to say about this this final act before we uh, close out this episode and, and get ready for the discussion episode. And this promotional video is is really, really fascinating. We are shown these these boys and girls who are going through their normal healthy attachment phase with their parents and so on. Uh, they're at Armstrong School, which is clearly on the moon, right? There's a, a point, uh, an emphasis is made on the black sky behind them. So the school presumably is named for Neil Armstrong on the moon. And we have encountered an Armstrong school in Wolf before, right? It's in the fifth head of Cerberus, where it's the school that, that VRT attends in Frenchman's Landing. Uh, you know, I think we just love pointing out how Wolf is kind of repurposing, reusing all of these same ideas that he has and sort of putting them in different stories and doing different things with them. And we can see all of the different ways that Wolf is, is thinking about what the future will be like and what elements of his now are going to matter in the 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 future and uh that's something that we'll take up when we do the discussion episode as well but before we leave off i do also want to mention this bit of wolf the engineer that we get because we get this real detailed explanation of this chemical lift shaft which is something that is cool on its own i mean it definitely reminded me of bradbury's story the Velt, which we did over on elder sign a few months ago and also has lift shafts though i don't think they're quite this sophisticated i don't think bradbury had thought them out quite the way that wolf had but this is also something that isn't just like a nifty device right it is presumably actually a necessary invention in a world that has serious resource scarcities that has a a serious energy scarcity this is a chemical way of having an elevator that doesn't require electricity because that's not uh possible to just make all the electricity you could want anymore so that's a really interesting detail on its own but also i mean this building is more than 101 stories tall that is serious business to be using this chemical lift shaft in Uh, i went up in the empire state building uh about a month ago you know on just a a regular elevator and you know that can be kind of a, a disconcerting experience i can't imagine going up that high while swimming just on on liquefied air yeah it's really weird i mean it also calls to mind the sort of scene in charlie and the chocolate factory where there's so they drink that soda and it gets them to float um there's just a lot going on here in this lift shaft scene in the story where wolf centers the closing action i do want to point out though uh before we end that Paul is yelling die to the boy. I don't think I made that th- that clear just a moment ago. Um, and the boy is holding the rod that, that Paul had used for a pry bar. So this is this kind of return of the image of the broken neck and the not quite dead person who is dead. And I think on that note, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Stay tuned for the discussion. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know you what you thought of our first episode of coverage of The Hero as Werewolf. 
And before we go again, I just want to say thank you so much for helping us reach our crowdfunding goals. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. This keeps us on the air and we're so grateful for it. So next time we'll be back with a discussion episode devoted to the hero as werewolf. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.